Welcome to the Philcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. Today we're talking about Warrior Mindset Part 2. Hopefully you guys tuned in to Episode 3 where we talked about Warrior Mindset. What are some things that I could do to specifically build on a foundation and increase the chances of me having a warrior mindset. You know, just to recap, a couple of things is number one, this isn't just for the man or woman who's trying to go into the military or who's trying out for special operations. This is specifically for anybody who wants to have a more resilient, a more definitive way of thinking to get through the tough times, to get through the trials and tribulations. You know, the same things that I applied downrange when you know operating in harsh environments could be the same things that you apply in your everyday life that could clearly get you through tough objectives and tough situations in your everyday life. So don't feel like you really have to have any military experience or plan on doing anything in the military to be able to apply this. One thing we talked about last episode was what are specific techniques? We talked about how not to quit. We talked about going to your happy place. We talked about embracing the suck. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to episode three, to listen to episode three prior to listen to this episode, episode four. So in this episode, we're going to start off by talking about mental gaming. Now, what the hell is mental gaming? Mental gaming is a way to trick your brain into advancing your mental state and physical abilities by tricking your brain. And typically this is associated with performance and athletes who specifically perform under pressure. Now, I've read a whole bunch of books on psychology. I've applied a lot of these techniques in competition. And it started with a book called With Winning in Mind. And it's a book that analyzes professional Olympic level athletes and analyzes their abilities to either succeed or fail under a lot of pressure. So, you know, you guys have seen it in the Olympics, you know, whether it's summer or winter, where the Olympic athlete goes up and they can do one move, right? And maybe it's the dismount. And that one move means the difference between winning or losing. And they know it. In that instance, they know it. So it analyzes the psychology of what happens to you in that instance, and why some people win and some people lose. What I've done is, you know, I've kind of looked at that and I look at survival psychology. I study survival psychology and I try to do my best to get a broad stroke understanding of why people live and why people die in certain situations. This psychology is important for me to learn different aspects because I've killed people in combat and I'm not afraid to say that. But the reason I say that is because it gives me an understanding psychologically of what specifically I was thinking and what actions I took to make those moves and do what I had to do in order to survive. And so when we look at specific performance-based athletic performance, you know, we got to analyze what is the direct pressure that's applied to them and how do they deal with that pressure? So when you're not in a survival situation, when you're doing a sport, it could be the culmination for an Olympic athlete of an entire lifetime leading up to the instance 
in which they win or lose. Their entire life, whatever sport they perform in, leading up to that moment was to win a gold, to show the world that they're the best. Now think about that. That's completely crazy to think about because in special operations, when we're doing counterterrorism operations, and let's say I'm doing a hostage rescue, I've trained really my entire adult life to put myself in a position to do a hostage rescue and to win. It's similar, right? And when I put myself in that situation, I could make the decision in one shot whether or not I'm going to kill the bad guy and save the hostage or I'm going to fail. I'm going to accidentally kill the hostage or I'm going to potentially not shoot the bad guy. That is a lot of pressure either way you look at it. Now, this pressure can be applied to anything in your life, any critical decision that you have to make in your life. And that's really interesting to think about because on a daily basis, we make decisions, good, bad, or indifferent, that shape the path of our lives. And you know, I'm going to digress just a little bit, tell you about my philosophy on life. My philosophy on life based on being in the military, living in different countries, experiencing a worldly point of view is that after reprioritizing my life based on those experiences, I am living my life today for that last moment in time in which I take my last breath. If given the opportunity in that last moment and I look back on the life that I experienced and lived, I want to know that I live my life with no regrets. When you look at your life and how you're living it daily, you're basically living your life to make the best decisions that you can and not live a regretful life. And so those critical decisions that you make on a daily basis should be impactful, right? They should be those instances where you look at your life and you think, did I culminate my life in this instance and did I live it the right way? And if you could do that, you've lived a life worth living. And so you're looking at all the decisions that you make that are critical decisions as a Rolodex of memories. So the reason I tell you that is because when you're looking at making decisions and you're looking at doing something that potentially could save or lose a life, which in my case would be in special operations, or you're making a decision to win or lose, you are making critical decisions along the way and you have to learn how to deal with that. There's a lot of stressors that are involved. You know, and I talked about the Olympic athlete. When the Olympic athlete has the situation where he's trained his or hers entire life to get up to that point, that's a lot of pressure. Whether it's self-induced or it's induced by family and friends, whatever the stressors are, they're real. And those same stressors exist in situations where people actually are trying to survive. If somebody is trying to survive and they have to make a life or death situation, at that moment in which they have to make that decision, there's a lot of pressure. Because they know potentially, if I do the wrong thing, I might die. So there's part of this psychology where you have to look at the totality of why people make decisions and win or live. And why do people make decisions and die and fail or lose? So let's talk about it a little bit. One, what's the whole point of that whole diatribe that I just gave you? 
the whole point is that training, the training gap, being confident in your skill sets and what you do and your capabilities is one way in which you get to a point in which you can make decisions and they're confident decisions and you could win. Where you've trained with your everyday carry to draw from a concealed carry and to shoot a bad guy or a target. And you're confronted with that real life situation and you confidently go to that firearm, draw, shoot, and save your own life. The whole entire point is that training is the missing gap. The confident Olympic athletes absolutely 100% have the same pressures. But what's different is how they apply those pressures that affect them. An Olympic athlete who's trained, who's confident, who understands their weaknesses, who analyzes the entire process and cycle of training, they are more in tuned with what they have to do to get through, to be resilient. Like episode three, we talked about having that will. And the people who aren't trained, the people who aren't confident, who overanalyze themselves, who make bad decisions, who don't train as hard as the people who are prepared, they absolutely make the wrong decisions and fail. You know, there's a psychologist that I quote all the time. His name is John Leach. And John Leach specifically talks about portions or percentages of the population of the people that he analyzed who were involved in case studies of survival catastrophes. And he analyzed that 10% of the population is going to live. They're going to live because whether they have confidence or they have prior training or they just have the cognitive ability to do the right thing, they live. 80% of the population, you could split that in two and say that basically half of them are going to do the right thing and maybe half of them not. And based on their life experiences, based on their training, based on their cognitive abilities, they may or might not do the right thing, but they're in a better category than the bottom 10%. The bottom 10% are destined to die because they basically always do the wrong thing. They're the guys who drown with a lifeguard vest floating right next to them. And there's a series of examples that you could see where they make the wrong mistake consistently. So the missing gap, and this is something that I teach in my active shooter course, is that when you instill or inject or put information and knowledge in somebody's brain and they're faced with stress and they revert back to that training, that training that they have in their brain is what's going to save them or make them more likely to survive than if they didn't have the training. So what I'm telling you is you have to train and be confident in all the things that you expect to run into in survival. I tell you this whole entire synopsis of my thoughts because I faced the same thing in assessment and selection. You know, when I went to Special Forces Selection, Prior to leading up to it, I had some confidence issues because I knew that it was going to be difficult. It was going to be challenging. But I did my homework, right? I looked for what endurance athletes were doing. I looked at you know, what I needed to eat, what I needed to do for recovery, and I trained it. I planned it. I rehearsed it. And then when I went to selection, I executed it. Now, there's a portion of assessment and selection where it doesn't matter what kind of athlete you are. You could be an Olympic athlete you're still going to get broken off. But the entire point is if you're prepared and you go into a really bad situation, you're going to have the tenacity, you're going to have the resiliency, 
you're going to have the hardness to be able to get through that situation and be better prepared, more likely to succeed. When I was in Special Forces, I was an 18 Bravo. I was a weapons sergeant. So I took pride in the ability for me to understand weapon systems, how they operated, and for me to also be schooled in tactics. So I wanted to be a good shooter. And one thing I always did after work, I did it with teammates. I always shot IPSC, International Pistol Competitions, and IDPA, International Defense Pistol Competitions. And I did these because the closest thing that I can get to reality where I was you know, drawing off a pro timer, shooting multiple targets in different scenarios, and then I could take that training and apply it back to my job in training Special Forces guys. And so it's always been a part of my curriculum, my daily life in special operations is to learn how best to train and apply it to real world scenarios and train my guys in it. Well, what I learned is that the pro timer, being around peers, that was the worst stress that I've ever induced in myself. And the reason why is because one, I was very competitive in nature. I still am. And since I'm competitive, I put this pressure on myself to be successful. And when I don't succeed and I, and I don't win, I'm very hard on myself. But also being on the pro timer and being measured for accuracy and speed, I was constantly being judged. And as I was constantly being judged, I felt like I was under the microscope, but I needed that pressure. I remember like my guts being all jacked up and you know I have to use the bathroom before I would have the shakes all these weird things that would happen to me physiologically were happening prior to me competing and being put in a situation to make the right decisions to win. And what I realized is it was stressing me the hell out. I mean, dude, I was getting PTSD from shooting pistol competitions. That's ridiculous. But what I started to understand was the way in which I managed that stress, the way in which I fought through those competitions is the same way that I would deal with it in real life. So what I was technically doing is I was practicing and rehearsing a real life experience so that when the real life experience happened, I would be better prepared. And so what I encourage you to do, if you're trying to improve this, what we call warrior mindset, you have to be training in the potential courses of action that might take place in real life. If you're looking to be a civilian who's better prepared, which is is really my main market, right? I want to train civilians, military, police, everybody, but civilians primarily because they don't have training institutions. They have private citizens who own businesses who could train them. And so if I could better prepare a civilian in survival and defense, then I could give them the tools necessary to survive and to have that warrior mindset. So I encourage you to always train and always to be better prepared. So what's something specifically that I mean that you could do at the event when you're trying to have this level of resilience and trying to fight through to win, to make the right decision? One thing that I recommend that you do is you stay conscious. What does staying conscious mean? When you're staying conscious, you're focused wholeheartedly on the situation. When you're talking about driving, for instance, and you're thinking or daydreaming about things consciously, meaning on the forefront of your mind, subconsciously you're driving. So let's say you're doing a shooting competition, and I tell you this because I could relate to it. And if you haven't done it, I apologize, but do your best to follow along here. When you're shooting a shooting competition, there are 
subtasks that you have to accomplish through the duration of fire. For example, when you're moving from target to target, potentially, depending on the distance, let's say it's a further distance, you might want to acquire your front sight. So when you acquire your front sight, it's an actual conscious process in which you say to your eyes, I want you to get front sight focus. Well, if you trained a lot, my eyes automatically go to muscle memory and automatically pick up that front sight. But if you haven't trained that, you have to consciously tell your eyes to go to your front sight. And typically, I reinforce it with my students by telling them to say front sight focus, front sight focus. Because if you say something verbally and you give yourself a your conscious forefront of your mind a command, then it works in tune with the action and helps you execute your end state. So when you're consciously pushing through that course of fire, you're telling your body, in this instance, your eyes, to do something specific. And you have to consciously be thinking that. Well, somebody like me or Aaron or you know Johnny, all these, all these tactical people, we've done it so much, we do it on autopilot. We do it subconsciously. So we could do that same exact thing and it's gonna be a little faster. And so when you're going through this entire process that, and you wanna be on point, you wanna make right decisions, there is a time and place for you to be conscious and unconscious. If time isn't of the essence, if time's not the critical factor between winning and losing, then you could afford to be conscious and making the right decisions. I do the equation to, you know, doing CQB where we, I tell SWAT guys, I tell civilians who I'm teaching, hey, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If you move slow and you consciously think about what you're doing, the reality is you're probably moving fast because it's something that you're anticipating, right? There's a little bit of cortisol involved. There's a little adrenaline, but if you're consciously thinking through the motions and you're making right decisions and it's clean, it's refined and you win, then that's better than making unconscious wrong decisions and just fucking it up. So you have to stay conscious. You have to stay in it. When Olympic athletes perform and they execute, if they've done it so many times that they could turn off their brain and execute on autopilot, then the more power to them, the higher statistical probability that they're going to succeed. You know, conscious thought is something that can really screw you up. I mean, it could screw you up mentally, psychologically. I use the analogy that there's a couple of cartoons that I remember watching where like the brain sitting inside of a chair controlling the person's body from his head. It's that same kind of thinking, right? There's a guy who's sitting in a chair and he's controlling this person who has access to the body. Well, in the back room, in a back closet, there's this shithead who subconsciously knows he could push a button and run your body on autopilot based on your level of training. But that conscious voice and that subconscious voice tend to interact with each other and really fuck each other up. So you have to have the ability to consciously and subconsciously control yourself to make good decisions, right decisions. I remember the first time, I think I was on a range with my buddy, Kurt, and we were thinking and talking out loud about what happens during the conduct of a gunfight. And something amazing that I discovered was, I get excited about this because I just reaffirmed it again and again, 
but I just completely reaffirmed it with about 20 officers at St. Louis Obispo when I trained a counterterrorism course with Homeland Security. And I put these officers from different departments, including firefighters, through a scenario in which they had to engage a bad guy. And when they engaged the bad guy, every single person who initially engaged them did not use their sights. They started pulling the trigger on the gun prior to them getting on their sights. Why? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. The reason is the fear response. And the fact that the fear response is faster than your ability to put a gun, a bore line with an optic on a target and find that with your eyes and pull the trigger. Think about it. If a threat presents itself, say you're in a house and a bad guy finds you in the hallway and your gun is pointed at him and you're holding the gun at a high ready and you look up and your eyes determine that this guy is an imminent threat because he has a gun, there is a process that takes place which is calculated and analyzed in time. Now, the eyes tell the brain and the brain tells the body to do something. Well, do you think because the person was trained to shoot the gun in front of their eyes, meaning using their sights, that they're going to get the gun to their sights and pull the trigger? No, absolutely not. Because the person's fear response is going to make them start squeezing the trigger prior because they know they're in a race for time for their life. And that's a critical understanding about analyzing conscious and subconscious thought. Subconsciously, my body's going to go on autopilot and I'm going to start pulling that trigger. One of the first dudes that I, that I killed in combat, I did just that. My gun was in line with him and I wasn't going to wait for the dude to put the gun on me. I continued to pull the trigger and then I worked up through this process. I call it evolving, right? Evolving as a gunfighter in which the end state, second, third, maybe fourth round should be getting behind my optic. By the time you probably get to your sights, the person's already down. But understanding that conscious and subconscious thought is critical and evaluating your performance. I hope you guys are, are tracking this. You know, if you're not, I, I want you guys to rewind it and listen again and again. It's kind of a philosophy that I talk about, but it's, I mean, it's really backed up with science, right? Because the numbers don't lie. You know, your reaction time is about a quarter of a second. Well, if the time it takes you to lift the gun on target is a quarter of a second, you're already halfway into a second and you're behind the curb. If the person is pointing a gun at you and all they have to do is pull the trigger with a quarter of a second, you're a quarter of a second behind because you have to lift the gun. So I teach people to hold the gun in line with a potential threat, use their eyes and track the barrel where their eyes are going so they can react immediately. Understanding these processes is how you're going to be better at performing your specific task when the task becomes critical. And why does this all tie back to warrior mindset? Well, warrior mindset is not just about being a big dumbass who's really strong, but you're a dumbass. Um, those guys exist. I've seen them, right? In selection, there's guys who they're strong as oxes. They would never quit. But eventually, your body's going to break down. And eventually, you're going to get to the raw core of who you are. And if you don't have the understanding of these kind of cognitive processes, you're not going to make it. You know, special operations want smart men and women who are able to make these smart decisions, not just in the execution phase, which everything is going wrong and they're faced on the battlefield with 
critical decisions that save or kill people. They want you to have this in training pre-combat, pre-training, to where you're learning this on your own and you can apply it when the shit hits the fan. It's the whole methodology, train smarter, not harder. You know, any dumbass can go to any school, but if he doesn't have the understanding to get through it, if he doesn't have the cognitive abilities to apply common sense, then he's not going to make it. And in warrior mindset, that is critical, especially when you're talking about being on the battlefield today. Look, being in special operations today, being, you know, a civilian in the world in which we live, you have to be smart. You can't just focus wholeheartedly on brawn. I get asked a lot in DMs and emails, hey, give me some advice I'm preparing. And typically I'm preparing and physically I'm doing X, Y, Z. And the first thing I say to them is don't focus so hard on the physical attributes needed to be a warrior. Focus more on the skill sets, the learning, the intelligence required, and you'll be a better operator. You'll be better prepared. Another part of this warrior mindset that I wanted to get across to you is I wanted to describe a couple of attributes. You know, you can call them attributes, you call them values, call them whatever the hell you want, but they're characteristics of someone who would be seen as having a warrior mindset. And I wanted to talk about those individually and just tell you how they actually apply to an actual warrior and give you an understanding from a special operations guy's perspective on what these attributes and these values mean to us. Loyalty. Loyalty is very important in special operations, especially when you look at warriors and the class that the culture develops, right? I'm in a class of warriors who are in a brotherhood where loyalty is one of the most imperative elements of being a cohesive unit. We depend on each other in special operations to have each other's backs because when we're not looking behind us, we know our backs are covered and vice versa. And so when I think about being an operator and the guys that I've served with, every single guy that I've operated with downrange, I knew I could trust. I knew they had my backs especially in combat. And you never cross that line. Guys have crossed the line, which they've been disloyal and they've begged for forgiveness. And I'll tell you what, once the community gets a hold of your name because you were disloyal, because you know you did something wrong, you, know, you screwed somebody's wife, you cheated on your team, you stole money from the op fund, you had a bad shoot and you blamed somebody else in, in training, you just did dumb shit, you will never be forgiven. I'll tell you that the special operations community is a cutthroat community that believes in complete and utter loyalty. And I like that about the, the warrior class. Another characteristic or another value is selflessness. Everybody in my line of work, the guys that are respected the most, Kevin, Jason, Damon, Brian, Tony, Chris, I mean, these guys were the epitome of warriors and they and they were the guys that I looked up to. And if any of those guys were selfish in any way, it was completely called out in an open forum. Special operations guys are known for being abrasive in the fact that they're very open communicators, sometimes too open. Just like my Asian mother who tells my girlfriend she has a pimple on her face. They are very open and not afraid to tell somebody when they're fucked up, when they're messed up, when they make mistakes when they're being selfish. 
an example of being selfish is doing something for personal gain and not putting the team first. When I had a special forces team, my guys came first. The number one priority and the only thing that mattered were my guys. I would do anything for them. And so having that selfless personality where you put the team first and you put all of that over yourself is imperative in the warrior class. The third one that we'll talk about is valor. What does that mean though? If you look at the commanders and extremist force, for example, which is a high speed counterterrorism unit in special forces, you know, they go in out every night. We went out every night jumping on helicopters and hitting houses. And every situation we put ourselves in was a bad one. We're going against the enemy that which we're targeting. We have pre-planned operations, which we know, you know, the exact shitheads that we're going after. And so we didn't equate running into a gunfight, running into a breach point was valorous. And if you look at some units through my experience, you know, I won't name any services, Navy SEALs, but they equate valor in a different way. It's because it's a different culture. They breach a door, they take gunshots into the breach or they get in a firefight, then they immediately will get a valorous award. Now, awards separate from actual valor, there's one way to look at valor, right? If you're getting awards, if you're getting, you know, all these accolades for doing a valorous job, that stuff is different from actually being valorous. What I mean is like the situation, what I talked about in the third podcast, last podcast, about Chris, you know, getting off the helicopter, running into a gunfight and never looking back, always expecting that he was going to be in harm's way. And that kind of mentality, that kind of mindset where you're putting yourself in front of your brothers to shield them from gunfire, to put yourself in the gunfight, that's normal. That's a part of our culture. And it's not something that we do and we expect some kind of accolade. We don't look back and go, hey, pat me on the back. No, we just do that. And we do it every single night. So if you want to be closer to a warrior class, a warrior mindset, you have to do these things. I looked at Warrior Mindset and I took a whole bunch of notes prior to this podcast and I kind of diverted away from that because I, I want to talk from an emotional state about my experiences and what I'm thinking from the top of my head. I don't want to just write shit out, give you the structure and then give you a can of spam. I want to give you a can of whoop ass, if that makes any sense. That was pretty cheesy, but I'm going to go with it. We're going to keep this in the recording. No edits. My whole intent for this podcast, part one and part two, is to give you an idea of what warrior mindset is, what you could do to improve on your warrior mindset, and what it takes. Look, this is an ongoing process. I plan to do warrior mindset, mindset period and survival, mindset on the flat range, mindset in a firefight, and give you guys more perspective on a very complex topic. So I'm looking forward to more of these podcasts in the future. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. This was episode four. You know, I'm going to do about two podcasts every week. I got Andrew, a good buddy of mine, who's editing these for me. And it, I kick him in the balls every time I, I send him one and he's with his family. I appreciate all the hard work. I appreciate all the support that I get for doing this podcast. Look, I don't make any money off this podcast. I started this with Mentors for Military, which is an awesome podcast. And they hooked me up with the infrastructure. And there's nothing really to be gained besides giving you good content, talking about my company, talking about my experiences. 
If you guys want to learn more, I encourage you to go to philcraftsurvival.com. I encourage you to go to our Instagram handles at soft survivor, SOF survivor, at philcraftsurvival. I got training courses up for fiscal year 2017. I have a whole bunch of blogs, experiences, and you can continue to listen to these podcasts to learn more about survival preparedness, everything from defense to off-road stuff. For guys who are listening to this podcast tomorrow, I'm going to be in Utah Wednesday at Lucky 13 at 7 o'clock p.m. doing dinner with Mike and his wife from Overland Bound. If you guys haven't checked them out, Overland Bound is an awesome community. It's at Overland Bound on Instagram. A great community of overlanders who take their rigs, go out on these expeditions, and I encourage you guys to join them, man. They're awesome. The organization is awesome. I'm a member myself, and so is my forerunner. Please go on, subscribe on the podcast, leave feedback. If you got any questions, please email us at media at philcraftsurvival.com. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive. Stay alive.